But it has one meaning. Now, do I always know what the meaning is? Not always. There, there are several that I would, and so would you. You'd look at and say, here's some possible explanations. Uh, there's some difficult passages. Okay? But once we understand what it means, then we can make application. That's kind of where we left off uh, last time. Uh, that the Bible demands application. Basically, it's, it's determining if a passage, uh, if and how a passage should change our life. I mean, he, God designed the Bible to be a life-changing book, not just a treasury of religious information. There's a huge difference between the two. It's one thing to go and win a theological debate, or I go to study to win an argument, or to prove somebody wrong, or any number of other things. But when we go to the Scriptures to have my life transformed in the image of Christ, there's a big difference. Uh, we spent, again, we went through 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which is one of the foundational verses in this. He talks about the Bible being profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. And you see that cycle repeated all throughout Scripture. And God will point out an error. He'll point the right way to go. He'll strengthen us up in the pathway of faith. Um, so God's Word prepares us to serve the Lord when we study and apply it. But again, mere knowledge builds pride. There's nothing wrong with knowledge. Uh, Paul said knowledge puffeth up. He wasn't saying knowledge is bad. But what he was saying is the accumulation of knowledge without letting it penetrate the heart, all it does is swell the head. That's all it, that's all it produces. Uh, James exhorts us. And there's many passages that give similar sentiments. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. And what's the next sentence? deceiving your own selves. In other words, as I understand a passage, or maybe I hear a sermon somewhere and I think that was a good sermon, and I add it to my treasury of, of understanding, there's a kind of a, a salving of the conscience that goes with that where I can deceive myself just because I know it I think all is well. And James is saying, do something about it. Or you're just tricking, you're just fooling yourself. I think the danger gets higher and higher the longer we've been Christians. I find, you know, the, the longer you walk with God, the more you see your own depravity. Isn't that true? Uh, the Lord shows us what we need to come to Christ, but I bet most of you, you would say you see yourself as more evil now than you did when you first came to Christ. Is that true? Because you, you see more of the depths of the things that are there, and it shocks you as a child of God sometimes at the tension that's going on. Yes? What about conviction, repentance, and obedience? You, said, you said we see ourselves as, as greater sinners now than we did in the beginning, but I'd have to debate that because I've confessed my sin. I agree. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. I'm seeing we see, we understand our propensity to do evil worse. We, we, see, more of, we see more of what sin is. You know, when you, knew, when you first come to Christ, it's the major things that bother you. Little things of hypocrisy, maybe, or uh, little hidden sins of the heart that you didn't even recognize at the beginning. But the longer you walk with God, the more you see those. The more you're shocked to find them dwelling within, the more sometimes there's a battle uh, between knowing what's right and doing it. 
Any of you ever found it? It's easy to comfort yourself that, well, oh, oh, I know, I, I know, I know how to deal with that. And you're not dealing with it, but you feel good because you know how. That, so that whenever you need to deal with it, you know where to go to deal with it. And James is saying, that's not good. That's self-deception. So we have to actually do something about what we're, what we're storing in here. Uh, and he points out in this lesson, most likely demons could pass an examination in theology. Um, do they know the, just the basic answers to theological questions? Well, to some degree, yeah, they do. Obviously, they don't have spiritual understanding. But they know the facts. So again, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, but a very, very, very well-known passage. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding, because that's our common bent. Um, and when we come to the Scriptures, <laughs> we have to be careful not to bring preconceived notions too much. Um, so God has designed us for spiritual transformation and applying his word will equip us for that transformation. But we must first decide we want to become what he wants us to become. So if you look at the Great Commission, the essence of the Great Commission is making disciples. Um, you've heard me say it here before. It's bothersome to me when I hear the Great Commission equated with evangelism alone. It's not just evangelism. That's part of it. But the goal is disciples of Christ. Seeing people saved, baptized, and brought to maturity, and that cycle continues. So in reality, the goal of Bible study is to become a more and more effective disciple of my Lord and Master. To think like He does. To see like He does. To react like He does. Uh, to... Uh, judge things like he does, as much as is committed to me. I know there's judgment that only God alone has, but there's certain things he wants me to call uh, what they are. So as we behold the glory of the Lord in his word, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are transformed into his image. And then we talked about 1 Peter uh, 1, 13 to 16 The Lord says, be ye holy as I am holy. Of course, we're made holy and standing the minute we come to Christ. But... Our growth as a Christian is a process. It's something that's ongoing. And how high of a standard is holiness? Now, let me ask this question. Has God given us this standard that He knows we will fail to keep only to sit and beat us and berate us as we're on our growth towards change? I think sometimes believers think of God like that. He's given me this impossible task, and I know I'll never get there on this earth. Why don't I just quit? But we sometimes forget, what is God after with you and me? It's not you keeping a list of rules or standards. Ultimately, He's after fellowship with you, closeness with you. The essence of fellowship is going the same direction. Not just standing in the same place. It's heading the same way. And God wants fellowship with us. He delights in the process of growth. That's why He uh, created it the way that He did. All right. 
back to where we ended last time, application is methodical. And by methodical, I don't mean so mechanical we turn it into some machine-like process. But just like the first steps in effective Bible study use a method, so does application. There's steps we can apply here to help us. All right, what am am I going to do about this portion of Scripture? Um, The following steps we're going to go through can at least help to work through that process. So when we consider the study process itself, obviously it should be a prayerful one. And uh, prayer is essential to the change that we desire. And when I say that, I don't mean, oh dear God, help me study, amen. But I don't think... Real prayer... I don't mean mechanical just habit, but real prayer, real communion with God isn't possible when I'm holding on to known sin. Or when I'm holding on to my way, as in, Lord, I have a better way to do this than you do. Or, Lord, it's very common for young people. If you've counseled much young people, you've probably heard sentiments like this. I'm, I'm afraid if I completely yield myself to God, what's he going to do? He's going to send me to be a missionary to the scientists in Antarctica. Or, you know, he's going he's gonna to do something hideous that, and you stop and think, wait a minute, what is that saying about the Lord? It, Number one, it's saying that he delights to make me miserable. And number two, it, it completely ignores the fact, now our happiness isn't the supreme goal in all this, but as a byproduct, you will never be more joyful than being right in the will of God. <laughs> so uh, sometimes we maybe hold back, Lord, if I, if I say my, everything's yours, my money's yours, my possessions are yours, my time, my life, my health, everything's yours. If I do that, He'll crush me, or he'll kick me, or he'll... No. But real prayer is really not possible without submission. Um, Which is one one of the reasons why this is so important in Bible study. I think it is important, too. And I know some debate, should I study first? Should I pray first? Is it a combination of the two? I'm not going to get into all how you should do it, but at least taking some time to ask the Lord's help, ask Him to open my eyes to acknowledge this is a spiritual work and I need illumination to understand this book. I can't, I can't understand this in the energy of the flesh. So we humbly admit to God in prayer that we want to go beyond knowledge of interpretive facts and we want to go on to genuine transformation. So we can't start applying until we finished interpretation. Sometimes I think it's natural, feels natural to skip that. But we really shouldn't ask, what does this passage mean to me? Or what does this passage intend for me to change? Until we've answered the question, what does the passage mean? Once that's figured out, we determine the type of response. So again, we consider what was this passage meant to do in the original readers' lives? Who was it written to? What was going on? How would they have understood it? That's of paramount importance if we can get that information. Um, Remember 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we talked about it a minute ago. It applies to all readers of the Bible, not just modern readers. 
that applied to Timothy specifically when it was written to him at the church at Ephesus. So when the books of the Bible were written, they were designed to equip believers to live for God and make them godly. And so it's likely the way they applied the passage will give us guidance for our application. Now that's more challenging in the Old Testament. How many of you have found that opening up 2 Timothy and opening up Deuteronomy, this might be a little more difficult to make a solid application to your current day setting. It's there. It's there. But it was an entirely different dispensation. Um, and we have, to, we have to keep that in mind. Um, as we've discussed in previous lessons, we have to approach the narrative passages in light of earlier teaching with special attention uh, to the first five books of the Bible. Uh, for instance, as the original recipients of the book of Judges read its account of repetitive sinfulness, let's say you're a Jew and uh, you're reading that book and you're seeing your people just go through this washing machine cycle of uh, re reviving, at least a, a form of reviving, and then apathy and then direct sin and then uh, complete demolishing at the hands of their enemies and then a time of misery and crying out to God and then God sends a deliverer and there's a time of some kind of, I mean, it's just, it happens over and over and over again. Well, how are you going to make sense out of that? Well, the other books of the Bible surrounding that are of paramount importance in that. I mean, you, you need the first five books of the Bible to understand what's going on in Judges. Uh, they would have considered the promises of God given in Deuteronomy. Uh, since their covenant with God shaped their lives in God's land, the key to understanding and applying Judges would come from the Scriptures written by Moses. So the Jews should have realized they suffered God's judgment because God promised specific judgment for the specific sins they chose to commit. He told them in advance, if you do this, this will happen. He told them that. They should have seen God's blessing would be theirs as soon as they trusted and obeyed His word. Now, once we determine how the original readers were to apply a passage, we must determine whether we are in a similar situation. Uh, for instance, many of David's psalms Aren't the Psalms tremendous? And we, I, I haven't been chased through the backside of the wilderness by, a, by a, a nutcase who's a foot and a half taller than me. At least not yet. That hasn't happened to me. But yet we can go through the Psalms and there's tremendous similarities. Uh, Psalms, you see the recorded honesty of men who love God. And uh, particularly, if you go through the first few verses of the first 20 Psalms, you see kind of the, the, the whole array of human emotion. And you see, you see men who were willing to be honest with the Lord, willing to pour out what was really in their heart. Psalm 23.1, we all know, we don't have to turn there. The Lord is my shepherd. <laughs> well, God cares for His own like a shepherd for His sheep. I mean, what are sheep? You know, often, and I've said it, I think, well, sheep are stupid. They're not the smartest animal in the world, but they're, I don't think God's intent is to say you're an idiot, but I think it's, sheep are a dependent creature, and sheep don't do well, to say the least, without a shepherd. They get themselves into all sorts of trouble really, really quickly. And, and of course, the, well, I mean, the obvious inference of that, that, that's you and I. 
Well, I have a, you know, I can be reading my Bible every day and going my own way still because I'm accumulating knowledge, but I'm not doing anything about it. I'm not, I'm not being a doer of the word. Now, other passages don't have a direct application to our lives. Uh, when God provided a lamb for Abraham to offer in place of Isaac, for instance, let's say Tim comes to me and says, God told me to go slay my son on Mount Helena. Uh, no, he did not say that. <laughs> uh, that's, and I'm, I mean, kind of funny, but you've heard, you've heard plenty, I'm sure. You, some interpretations that people may come up with, and they may mean well, but they get really zealous about a very bad interpretation or a situation that has no application to them, not directly. Um, God wasn't telling us to go to Mount Moriah. He wasn't saying He'd give us lamb when we get ourselves into trouble. But His actions there do shine light on His love for us and His ultimate provision of the Lamb of God as our substitute. All right, I had us turn to 1 Timothy. Um, 1 Timothy 3. Now, these are, these are qualifications for pastors. Let's say I picked on Tim. Let's say Andy it has her morning devotion. She's in this section. And she reads 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And it's giving the qualifications of, of pastors. Uh, one of them is that they're, they're men. Now, is there a direct application directly to her? Not, not directly. Now, can you do something with that? Sure you can. In your case, you can help your husband to, to fulfill that and different things. So there's passages that aren't written directly to us that are still valuable. Um, but if our situation is like the original reader situation, we can list the ways that we can apply these passages to us in our situation. Um, all right, plan to respond. This is where we're going with this. The Holy Spirit is at work in every believer's life to help us become like the Lord Jesus. He's the motivating and empowering agent in sanctification. And that's mentioned all throughout the New Testament. As we study a passage, the Spirit wants to direct us to personalize the teachings of the passage and apply them. For help on identifying the ways that a passage could help you become Christ-like, and they use put an acronym here, which I think is helpful. I run across similar things. I'm sure you have. Maybe this is a reminder to some of us. But they use the acronym SPECS, S-P-E-C-S. That's one way. I'm not saying it's the only way to do this, but it is a helpful way. Put on your specs, S-P-E-C-S, as an acronym. The first S is sin. Is there a sin for me to forsake? Does this bring to light? And uh, sometimes... Sometimes it, it, it not sometimes a lot. It takes time. It takes time to sit and chew on this. For instance, uh, let's say you're reading through the section on. I remember Abraham's been told that he and Sarah are going to have a son, and they wait a long time, and uh, eventually they adopt the uh, the cultural norm. He takes a concubine to have children through her. Ishmael's produced. And uh, obviously, in hindsight, we would say that was not a good idea. And let's say I'm reading that and I say, is there a sin for me to forsake? Well, I'm not about to take an Egyptian concubine. So I guess not. Oh, but wait a minute. What was really going on? Through impatience, 
Abraham was willing to try to help God out by circumventing the waiting process. And by the way, that's something that happens a lot in Scripture under different circumstances. But see, now I can go, okay, now that makes, okay, yes, now, now I can examine myself through that. I'm not, his situation's not exactly the same. But boy, are there similarities. I can look back at my own life and I can see times where I thought, well, I better help the Lord out with this one. I think he needs me to step in and sort this one out a little bit, right? <laughs> and uh, what, a, what a colossal disaster that usually becomes. So is there a sin for me to forsake? As we prayerfully read through his word, the spirit may make it clear we're guilty of transgressing what the passage is calling us to do. And maybe we're doing something sinful or that we're not doing something righteous. All right, what's more sinful? Doing something God tells you not to do or not doing something God tells you to do? Yeah, you see, I think our, our, typically we tend to view doing something he said not to as worse. But there's still basically doing this to what the Lord's saying. So, sins of commission, sins of omission, they're all against the character and nature of God. We may categorize them. Uh, so, as we examine a passage, it may be something I am doing that I should stop or something I'm not doing that I need to start. And again, the danger becomes when, when we know these things and you're, you're going through the epistles for the 74th time. And I know this and I know this and I know this and okay, but am I doing it? Am I doing it? Now remember that the feeling of guilt and the reality of guilt may not go hand in hand. In other words, I may be guilty of a particular sin and I don't feel particularly guilty. But here it is. <laughs> um, here it is. Think of 2 Samuel 12. In fact, let's turn there. 2 Samuel 12, 13. This is uh, when David is finally brought to his senses. And isn't, isn't God merciful? I think we all remember David's repentance was not quick. Almost a year goes by. And uh, he testifies in some of the Psalms about how unpleasant that year was in his spirit. That God just, God just let him be miserable in his sin. But uh, 2 Samuel 12, 13, uh, the prophet Nathan points it out plain as day. Now remember, David, David was not unaware of what he'd done. It wasn't like he went, I did? And he'd been grappling with this and had refused to repent before God for, for months. And God turns up the heat in his goodness and he sends this prophet to say, remember he spends this parable and David gets really angry and he says, thou art the man. Even there, David could have had one of two responses. 
He could have continued hardening his heart. He could have had Nathan executed if he wanted. I mean, but he didn't. Look at his response. 2 Samuel 12, 13. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. <laughs> Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. So David acknowledges the word of God is true, and I'm not. He, he acknowledges sin against God. And uh, Psalm 51, in fact, let's look at the other side of this. Psalm 51, quickly. This is David's psalm of repentance. Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto thy multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me throughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before thee. Look at verse 4. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. And Paul brings that, that statement forward into Romans when he's laying out mankind's condemnation that God is right. Why would David say, though, against thee, thee only, have I sinned? Yeah. What about Uriah? Mm-hmm. He sinned against Uriah. Who else did he sin against? The list is long. In, in a sense, he sinned against the whole nation. He sinned against uh, Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. I mean, the, the child that was, I mean, was going to be born. But why would he say against thee only if I sinned? Is, is, okay, so here's where interpretation is important. Was that passage saying, I don't have to confess sin to anybody ever. Who cares if I offended them? It's only God that I've offended. Is that what he's saying? What do you think he's saying? He's saying, because you are the giver of the law, then I have sinned against you. Yeah, and I think he's acknowledging, yes, I've failed terribly against other people, but the fact that I've offended the Holy One on high is the worst part of what I've done. See, he acknowledged finally that what he'd done to the heart of God which is where true confession has to come from. Acknowledging I've grieved the Lord. I've sinned against Him, even if nobody else saw it. So he finally gets a sense. And, and again, David, did David know the law up here? Y yes, he did. Did David have head knowledge? Oh, he did. He had lots of head knowledge. I mean, did David have to sit? You think about this 9, 10, 11 month period when he's not repenting. Did he have to sit in judgment over any sort of legal matters? Oh, sure. He sat there and he, thus saith the law. He knew it. But David went back to being a doer of the word when he said these words. That uh, I've sinned against God. And he finally acknowledged it and he was able to go forward. So is there a sin for me to forsake? Number two, is there a promise? This is the P, S-P. Is there a promise for me to claim? Or maybe not just claim, but stand upon and do something about and be encouraged by. 
A passage may reveal one or more of God's promises. It could provide assurance, encouragement, or motivation for us, or any number of other things. Good interpretation is particularly important with God's promises because they're not always general. Uh, You've heard me say it before, I think. There's that song, every promise in the book is mine, right? That's technically not true. If you mean in the sense of it teaches me things about God's character, yes, but there are promises in the Bible that are not for you. There are promises in the Bible that aren't for Gentiles. You don't like that, sorry. That's fact. Um, so we have to be sure that the promise can be applied to us today. Uh, again, another, another common one. And you see this at these rallies of, of various religious groups come together, and what are they always quoting? 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Right? Now, does that, does that passage teach us things about God's character that are precious? Absolutely. I always find it amazing, though, typically when that verse is used, it's in an atmosphere of blatant disobedience against the Word of God. It's almost always fake gospels mixed with the true. Uh, music that would make the holy angels cringe and vomit. And so the idea that we're going to quote this verse and God has to do something when we definitely aren't humbling ourselves and turning from our wicked ways, that's problem number one. But who's my people there? Israel. Now, can God do great things in America? Yes, but do we have a guarantee He's going to heal our land? We don't. We do not. So we can make application of that, but we have to be careful saying God will absolutely do this and fix America and restore it to what it was or something greater nationally. I don't know that. Neither do you. Um, 2 Corinthians 1.20. 2 Corinthians Someone read that to me. 2 Corinthians 1, read it to us. I mean, 2 Corinthians. So, what does that mean? All the promises of God by Him, by Christ, in, in Christ, are yea and amen. What, is that? what does that mean? I mean, what does amen mean when we say it? It's true, it's right. He's saying, again, there's many passages that would touch on this topic, but God's promises are true and can be trusted. No matter what I feel, no matter what I've seen, no matter what experiences I think or didn't think I've had, here's the thing, experiences are apt to be very misleading, and we don't know all the facts. Um, I've had many conversations with people, I'm sure you have, Well, the Bible says this, and I saw this happen. Do you know all the circumstances and facts behind it? Probably not. (laughs) Uh, God's word is true and can be trusted. They're true and will absolutely be fulfilled. So is there a sin for me to confess? Is there a promise for me to claim? Uh, Thirdly, is there an example? That's the E. Is there an example for me to follow? or to avoid. Proverbs does this over and over. It's interesting, Proverbs doesn't just give positive examples, but it gives negative ones. 
he tells the person to be like and the person to not be like. A character in a passage may offer a lifestyle lesson that will help us to move ahead spiritually. There will also be cases in which a character provides an example of what we should avoid. As we observe a biblical character's choices and their consequences, we learn how to live spiritual, our, our own spiritual life. Now, why do you think, even in a really tremendous individual like David or Moses or Abraham, why do you think God would record for us their failure? Why would he do that? What are some of the reasons you think? I think it's a good question to ask. He didn't have to do that. There's Joseph and there's Daniel who nothing negative is recorded about unless you count Joseph sharing his dream with his brothers. That's debatable whether or not he should have done that, but I wouldn't call it a bad thing. Um, but then we have these biggest names in Jewish history. Why, why would God do that? Why would he give us, why would he record the, the negatives? I think that's a big reason. They, they dealt with their sin they were sinners. They were sinners. I think sometimes we forget, or maybe I catch myself doing it. These are men of like passions with you and I. Elijah's failures in there too, speaking of that, that passage. But these were people that had the same nature, the same bent as us, struggled with the same things. They weren't just born on a higher plateau. And I think the Lord records their failures to give us warning that even somebody of that spiritual caliber, if they don't watch, can have a trap laid over a period of time and down they go. Um, when colossal falls happen, I think you can uh, defend this scripturally, when colossal falls happen, they're never quick. The manifestation's quick. But what's led up to that has been a process of laying of a trap and walking into it. Boom, and it happens. So it's a warning. <clears throat> it's an encouragement to repent and get up and move on. We see how God still used these people. And then you get, in fact, we're going to talk about it this morning in the morning service, a passage like Hebrews 11, and their faults aren't even mentioned there. Because <laughs> that's not the point of the passage. So God does that on purpose that we may see these examples and we may learn from them. Uh, so is there an example for me to follow? Again, Paul lifted himself up as the pattern believer under inspiration of the Holy Spirit multiple times. In some way or another, he said, follow me or follow me as I follow Christ, etc. Um, <clears throat> number four, here's the C. Is there a command for me to obey? I mean, is there an imperative statement here that's basically, I either do it or I'm disobeying God? And that really is what it is. The Bible directs us to stop doing what's wrong by replacing it with what honors God. And so we examine a passage carefully to see if it teaches exactly what we should do or shouldn't do. And uh, you go through, we're not going to turn there, but Ephesians 4, 20-32, for instance. Um, that passage points out the error and gives the correction over and over and over and over and over again. It's pretty easy to pick out. Other passages, we may have to go elsewhere to find the alternative. Remember, God doesn't, 
God's way is not just stop doing the wrong, it's replace it with the right. That's always the case. Um, I wish I'd have learned that sooner in my Christian life. Battles of thought and different things. Stop thinking that. Stop thinking that. Stop thinking. You don't, you don't stop thinking it. Or stop doing that. Stop doing that. You don't stop. You have to do something else instead. <laughs> Go forward in the right direction. And so is there something in the passage that's obvious? You, I have to stop this. And I need to put some time in maybe asking the Lord and searching, all right, what, what do I do instead? What, how should that time or that money or that thought or whatever, how, how should that be invested for eternity? And then fifthly, the S, and this is kind of intermingled with the others, is there a stumbling block for me to avoid? And uh, in this acronym, I had to ask, well, what's the difference between a stumbling block and a sin? A stumbling block may be something that's going to lead to sin if I don't recognize it and do something about it. It, it may be a companion that if I keep walking with them, I'm going to get myself in trouble and dishonor the Lord. It may be a life habit or something else that if I continue that, Sin is going to be the result. The prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself. The simple pass on and are punished. Um, I think of, again, uh, Hebrews 12. Lay aside every weight. Weight uh, is not necessarily something evil. I, I say, we, in fact, we, we were coming to Sunday school this morning and they had those signs up, delay, spec delays, and there's all these bicyclers going for, I don't know, some kind of race or something going on. You know? And they have rules. But let's say one of those bike bicyclers, he's carrying, he likes rocks, and he keeps stopping, and he's got a backpack on, and he fills it full of rocks. The whole race. Is that against the rules? Did he, he didn't break any rules, but he sure isn't going to win the race. Um, so... Stumbling blocks may be identifying things that aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, but maybe they're not right for me, or they're not right for me at this time, or they're not right in the situation the Lord's putting me, or for whatever reason, they're not a help in my walk with God. They're going to be a hindrance in some way. So is there a promise for me to claim? Is there an example to follow, a command to obey, a stumbling block to avoid? <clears throat> I think of uh, Ananias and Sapphira. What a shock that would have been to the early church, right? God's doing amazing things. Thousands are converted. People are bringing their money and laying it down. What, what was their temptation? <laughs> what was it? It wasn't even money. Can you imagine us that we could be, we could be so evil as to actually covet the high opinions of a group of people that's walking with God. Why, why did they do what they did? Because they wanted to appear to be something. That was it. And uh, again, they, they didn't have to sell the land. Peter made that plain. No one was making them do it. This wasn't forced apostolic communism. They just wanted to appear to be something they weren't. And down they went. So we must plan how to do what the passage urges us to do or be what the passage urges us to be. There's a great distance between identifying the need or saying, all right, here's what I should do 
and then turning that need into actual God-honoring action. What am I going to do about it? So, on one hand, you have, yes, this needs to change. I need to deal with this. But for that to become, here's what I'm going to do about it, that's where Bible study becomes faith and not merely the accumulation of fact. Now I'm actually believing and doing something about what the Lord is saying. Now I'm treating His Word like a light shining in a dark place. We talked about the six serving men of Rudyard Kipling. They're very helpful. Who, what, when, where, why, how, who, and... I already said who, didn't I? Who, what, when, where, why, how? Six. There's not seven of them. And and they're very helpful in, in Bible interpretation, asking questions of the text, but they're also helpful in this setting. Exactly what must be done. When will I do it? What steps must I take to do it? How will I know when I've done it? Who will help me do it? Maybe accountability is needed. So actually putting feet to the process of change is where a lot of Bible study becomes faith. And it turns from accumulation of knowledge into actually growth. So in application, we determine if a passage is meant to transform our lives. If it is, we set out a way to implement that transformation. And that's what makes the process, the labor of the study process, worthwhile. That's really where effectual Bible study is heading. How is this changing me? And uh, I'll tell you, it, it's, it's a scary thing. And, and you've probably found it too. You can preach a number of years. And if you're not careful, if you're not careful, you can, you can begin to dissect the text into ways to teach it and illustrations and everything else and almost bypass self-application, what am I going to do about this? What is, what is God calling me to change? So that's, that's where change occurs. I take the Word of God and I decide I'm going to do something about it. All right, any questions or comments? We need to be done. And let me say this too, in case somebody's discouraged. The way out is always forward. Start somewhere. I think sometimes we can get in the analysis paralysis and think, well, I've got all these things to work on. And if I can't do them all at once, I quit. And so we we, we never never change any of them. Start somewhere. (laughs) And remember, you have an omnipotent ally. The Spirit of God takes far bigger steps than we do. Um, But we have to be willing. We have to be willing to do the work. Questions or comments? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray that we, we would know it and stand upon it. But more than that, help us to be doers of the word. Help me to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. It's a precious book, a living book. 
Help us, Lord, to be changed more and more into the image of Christ. Amen.